Good morning, Heritage Baptist Church. It is my privilege to be here to open up God's Word together with you. I bring you greetings from Livingstone Bible Church. So thankful to Pastor Lelo and Mike for the invitation to be here. It's an incredible privilege. God is the source and owner of all the wealth and all the possessions in this world, some of which he's entrusted to you and I to steward for his glory, for his kingdom. One of my favorite prayer books is The Value of Vision, and the opening prayer reads, the title is The Value of Vision, this opening prayer, and it reads, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that to be broken hearted is to be healed hearted. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen. I'd invite you to please open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 13 through to 34, where we will see that the Lord has given each of us wealth and possessions so that we might store up treasures in heaven with God, where no moth or thief can touch. Luke chapter 12. In the previous chapter, in Luke 11, the chapter ends in verses 49 and 50, where Jesus calls the Pharisees fools. Fools! Because they were so greedy. They were full of robbery and plunder, he says. The Pharisees were supposed to be the leaders of God's people, and instead they were filled with greed. They were placing heavy burdens upon God's people, and it was their aim to destroy the gospel, to destroy Jesus Christ and his messages, the good news of salvation, which sets enslaved men and women free from the enslavement to sin and the meaningless possessions of this earth that so many pursue. Luke says in chapter 12, verse 1, that so many thousands of the crowd had gathered and they were trampling on one another. That's a lot of people. And then throughout this chapter, throughout chapter 12, all the way through to chapter 13, verse 9, Jesus engages in a, in a discourse where he alternates between his disciples and the crowd. And in the opening 12 verses of Luke chapter 12, 
he taught his disciples to not only avoid and expose the Pharisees' heresy, but they should also be prepared to proclaim the truth. They are to proclaim the truth in a world where they're going to face opposition and persecution, but they're to proclaim it boldly, fearlessly, widely, knowing that God will providentially take care of them. Remembering, as Jesus says at the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13, that the day of final judgment is coming. The foolish, heretical Pharisees, they will receive their just judgment. But Jesus' disciples will also need to give an account as to all that they have said and all that they have done. They will stand accountable for how they have stewarded that which God entrusted to them. And it's within this context that we find our passage, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, a portion of Scripture which is commonly referred to as the parable of the rich fool and storing up treasure with God in heaven. The message that Christ proclaims is very clear. God has entrusted wealth and material possessions to each one of us so that we might store up our treasures with God in heaven. Fools who fail to take into account the inevitability of death, they misuse their possessions, their wealth. They spend it on themselves. They spend it on their selfish passions rather than investing it, using it for God. Whereas Jesus' disciples, they are to be wise. They are to be generous. They are to recognize that what they possess ultimately belongs to God. They are merely stewards. And they are to use it for God's glory and for the good of others, not for themselves. And in so doing, they will be storing up treasures with God in heaven. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, we see two contrasting ways two contrasting ways in which you and I can use our wealth and possessions so that we, as Christ's disciples, might store up our treasures with God in heaven. And the first way is the foolish way. The foolishness of greed, we could call it. The foolishness of greed, which we see in chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. So read with me. Chapter 12, Verses 13 through 21. Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, And someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him, You fool, 
This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the reading of God's inerrant, authoritative word. The topic of greed is introduced with a bystander demanding that Jesus mediate an inheritance dispute between him and his older brother. In verses 16 through 21, Jesus responds by telling the crowd this parable where he paints a bleak picture of someone who stores up their treasures for himself here on earth and not with God in heaven. You can divide this parable up into four sections. You could call it maybe four seasons of life. The opening scene in verse 16, you have this rich man who has a piece of land, and the land yields a plentiful and abundant harvest. You could call this scene the rich man's prosperity. And like any good story, the next scene is a crisis. There's a problem that's introduced. And you see in verse 17, this man he faces a great difficulty. What am I going to do? How am I going to store this abundant harvest? You could call this scene the rich man's problem. In verses 18 and 19, he comes up with a solution. So the third scene. I'm going to construct a new barn large enough to store it all. This is the rich man's proposal. And the story ends in verse 20 and 21 with God dispensing punishment and judgment. You could call this scene the rich man's punishment. What was it that ultimately prompted Jesus to share this parable? If you look at the flow of the narrative, you see the account opens with him encouraging and exhorting his disciples until he is rudely interrupted with this young man from the crowd who says in verse 13, he, in fact, he actually commands Jesus in verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. This young man obviously felt that he was cheated by his older brother who was now looking, looking after his deceased father's estate, inheritance. And this young man was so wrapped up in his own petty concerns that he was completely deaf to Jesus' teaching concerning the future events. He was only concerned about the here and the now, getting his hands on some cash now. And instead of coming to Jesus in humility, in grace, asking for counsel, explaining that he and his brother are at odds, could he please provide some counsel? Would he be willing to maybe mediate this dispute? This young man commands Jesus to assert his authority to do what this young man has already determined needs to be done. In verse 14, Jesus responds to him saying, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitra arbitrator over you? You see, Jesus was more concerned about this man's heart than about resolving these issues, this money concern that he has. What is the root cause of quarrels? James tells us, in fact, he answers that question in James 4. In James 4, verses 1 through 3, he asks, he says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, 
So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you might spend it on your pleasures. Jesus knew what this young man ultimately wanted, what he was desiring after. He understood this young man's heart. And if you were this young man's biblical counselor, your job would be to draw that which is within his heart out. What is the idol of this young man's heart? Jesus tells us in verse 15, Jesus said to them, Watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What was this man ultimately idolizing? What was the, the enslavement? He was enslaved to greed. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, and he warns his disciples about the dangers of wealth. And he points to this young man as an object lesson, warning them about the dangers of greed. The love of money leads to greed, which ultimately leads to destruction. Greed, fueled by a fixation on amassing wealth, is the root of all kinds of evil. It will destroy us. And so Jesus reminds us that what truly matters is not accumulating as much wealth as you can. What truly matters is the state of your relationship with God. Greed pursues wealth and possessions as the whole meaning and purpose and goal of life. But Jesus says one's life does not consist in the abundance of what one possesses. You remember what he said is the whole meaning of eternal life in John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you and the one whom you sent. Knowing God, knowing God, having a relationship with God. That's the whole meaning of life, life eternal, an abundant life. God has created us to know him, to worship him to live our lives under his reign for his glory. But sadly, men too often substitute the enjoyment and the satisfaction of God with the enjoyment and satisfaction of wealth and possessions, which don't truly satisfy. Proverbs tells us that it is the blessing of Yahweh that makes rich, and he adds no pain with it. That's Proverbs 10 verse 22. Whereas the classic wisdom of the day said, one becomes rich through diligence and self-denial. And the reward allotted to him is this, when he says, I have found rest, and now I shall feast on my goods. For he does not know for how long it will be until he leaves them to others and dies. In contrast to this classical wisdom of the day, Jesus says, such a one, it's not wise, is a fool. And then he tells his disciples this parable. And I'm sure you're familiar with this parable. This parable of the rich fool. We introduced to this rich man in verse 16. We see he has a land and it is a very productive land. The Hebrews understood Psalm 24 verse 1, which says that the earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein belongs to Yahweh. They knew that Yahweh had already said in Psalm 50, verse 10 through 12, that every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. Everything that moves in the field is mine. 
In Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 29, when describing the kingdom of God, Jesus says that the seed scattered on the ground grows, and the farmer doesn't know how it grows. The farmer goes to sleep and rises night and day, and the seed by itself sprouts and grows. Obviously, God is the one who's responsible for the abundant harvest that this farmer brought in, the growth of the seed. But the rich man in this parable doesn't acknowledge nor thank God for his bountiful harvest. In contrast to Psalm 24 verse 1, which speaks about everything belonging to Yahweh, this rich man, in verse 17 through 19, he says, My crops, my bonds, my grain, my goods, my soul. His life is all about him, not God. In fact, it's me, myself, and I. I is repeated six times in these three verses. This man is completely self-absorbed. Verse 17 indicates that in his own eyes, this rich young, this rich farmer, his dilemma is not actually a moral one, it's a practical one. What is his problem? His problem is he's surplus. What am I going to do with this bountiful harvest? Where can I store it? It never occurs to him that he's already rich. He doesn't need anything more. And the fool's godlessness is revealed through his insatiable lust for more and more and more. In the previous chapter, in Luke 11 verse 3, Jesus taught us how to pray. Give us each day our daily bread. Not a year, not even a, a week's supply. Each day, our daily bread. This rich fool had more than enough for many years to come. And his problem was, how am I going to store the abundant harvest? That's my great anxiety. How am I going to store this? His real problem was greed. His ruthless craving for more and more without any thought of others. If he can hoard his grain, then when the price increases, he can then sell it at a higher price. Profit from the needs of others. But Proverbs 11 verse 26 condemns this practice, saying, He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessings will be on the head of him who sells it. Or Jeremiah 17 verse 11, which says, As a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune amassing wealth unjustly. In the midst of his days it will forsake him, and in the end he will be a wicked fool. This man is a covetous person, consumed by his cravings, comforted by and proud of all his possessions. He has a solution. Verse 18. This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build a larger one in its place. There I'll store all my grains and all my goods. Verse 19 indicates the reason why he wanted to hoard these grains. It gave him the sense of security. His security was resting in all that was stored within this barn. Again, still speaking to himself, he says to his own soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for yourselves many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him in verse 20, You fool, 
This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you prepared? This foolish man will not feast again on this earth. Nor will he feast even in the heavenly banquet. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This rich fool demonstrates by his words, by his deeds, that he is a practical atheist. He's essentially declaring there is no God. In the Greek, there's a play on words here. As the farmer looks at all his many goods that is laid up for himself for many years to come, he says to himself, take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And the Greek word for be merry at the end of verse 19 is euphreno, from euphron. And the Greek word for fool in the beginning of verse 20 is aphron. Euphron, aphron. You hear some similarity there. This man intends to hoard up his goods, enabling him to live it up, to be merry. But God says, fool, this is going to cost you your life. The one who began the story behind the scenes, the one who caused the, the seed to sprout, the one who generated this abundant harvest, the one who has been pushed to the side, ignored, rejected, disobeyed, he now makes a direct appearance. And he exposes this farmer's foolishness. He says to this fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And required there, it's actually a third-person plural verb, which means you could translate it as they are requiring, they are demanding your soul. What is they? What is it pointing to? What is it referring to? The many goods. The many goods that he's trying to store, store up. They, they are requiring your soul. Jesus says in verse 20 that it's these many goods laid up that are demanding his soul. And at the end of verse 20, God asks this rich fool, who will own what you prepared? If you were to die now, who's going to own what you prepared? And this should remind you of the initial inheritance dispute that took place in verse 13, which prompted this parable in the first place. What is implied here is that whilst this rich fool's family are grieving his loss, there will most likely be a dispute over how we're going to distribute our father's abundant grain and goods stored in this warehouse, this barn. Perhaps some will never speak to one another again. God concludes in verse 21 by saying, Such will be the case for everyone who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. There's no exceptions. This is the horrible end of those who store up their treasures here on earth. This man was a fool because he thought that his things rather than God would satisfy him, would secure him. But it was his lust for these things that condemned him to hell. And it would result in his family being torn apart. So how should we use our wealth and possessions that God has entrusted to us? Jesus says, give it away. Give it generously. St. Augustine commenting on this, 
Speaking about this rich fool, he says, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor are much safer storerooms than his barns. Having described the absolute foolishness of storing up treasures on this earth, using one's wealth and possessions for self rather than God, Jesus now turns his attention to his disciples. And he teaches them how they are to store treasures with God in heaven. How? Remember, Jesus is contrasting two ways to use one's wealth and possessions so that we can store it up with God in heaven where no thief, no moth can even touch. The first way, which is by far the most common way, is the foolish way. Trying to accumulate as much as you can so that you might be self-sufficient and secure. But that's not God's design for his disciples. That's not God's design for the wealth and possessions he's entrusted to us. Rather, we are to be faithful stewards, using them, or should I say, investing them with God in heaven. So what do you think might prevent such generosity? What is the biggest obstacle? Anxiety. Being worried that we might not have enough. And so in this next section, in verse 22 through 34, Jesus shows his disciples that anxiety is pointless and unfounded by describing the second way that we use or one can use their wealth and possessions. The second way is the fruitful way. We can call it the fruitfulness of generosity. The fruitfulness of generosity, which we see in verses 22 through 34. The fruitfulness of generosity. And so Luke continues and he says, And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? Therefore, if you cannot, even, if you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give it as charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfading treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the reading of God's authoritative and inspired word. 
After describing the foolishness of greed to the crowd, Jesus turns to his disciples to teach them how we are to be wise stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. How we are to store up treasures with God in heaven. And in this section, there are ten commands. In verse 22, he commands saying, do not worry. Verse 24, consider the ravens. Verse 27, consider the lilies. There's two commands in verse 29. Do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. Verse 31, but seek his kingdom. Verse 32, do not fear. And then there's three commands in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give it as charity. And then make for yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfading treasure in heaven. You could summarize these three commands, these ten commands in perhaps three. Have faith that God will provide for your every need. Secondly, when you're tempted to doubt that, look at the birds, look at the flowers, and look how God has provided for them. It's a visible proof that God will provide for you who are of far greater value. And then thirdly, Give. Give that which God has entrusted to you and so invest in eternity, storing your treasures with God in heaven. Now Jesus is not saying that we should act irresponsibly and not provide for our needs. He knows that we do need material possessions, which is exactly why he taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But what Jesus is warning against is the tyranny of things. One of the most significant impediments to spiritual growth is the selfish pursuit of wealth and possessions. Therefore, you and I need to be careful that earthly treasures do not become a snare. Paul had much to say about this. In his first letter to Timothy in chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by aspiring to have it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he continues in verse 17 and 19 through to 19, and he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they, will, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed." Since material things are so temporal, they are often taken away, they can be the source of great anxiety. It's a false sense of security. And therefore, if you are placing your confidence in it, you're going to be prone toward anxiety. And yet Jesus says in verse 22 and 23 that we must not worry. He says, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. 
for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. At the heart of anxiety is the doubt, is doubting that God will do what he has promised to do, which is take care of his children. God will provide for his disciples. Anxiety over food and clothing reveals, it reveals a, a, a deception. It reveals a heart condition that we need to put off. A deception in thinking that our human lives are ultimately only about the physical. And yet Jesus says your life consists of far more. And then Jesus points to the birds and the flowers as an illustration, a tangible picture to teach us and reinforce a theological truth. And his illustration is so effective because whenever you and I walk outside, we can be reminded of what Jesus teaches us here. Whenever we see a bird or a beautiful flower, we can be reminded of what Jesus is teaching us. In verse 24, Jesus says, Consider the ravens, which, by the way, in the Old Covenant, they were regarded as unclean, as abomination. And yet God feeds these birds, even these filthy ravens. Without them having to do any work, they don't sow the seed, they don't water the seed. What do they do? They just eat the seed. And Jesus contrasts these unclean ravens who are fed by God with us, who hustle and bustle and build these elaborate structures and amass food and other other possessions. But do you see the connection? God feeds these birds in the same way that he brings an abundant harvest for the farmer. And considering how God cares for these filthy creatures, which, by the way, frighten my wife. At the end of verse 24, Jesus says that really what should be so obvious is that you are of far more valuable, far more value than these birds. And the theological truth is very clear. If God is going to feed these birds, then you who are of far more value need not worry. He's going to feed you too. Your unwarranted, unfounded worry only demonstrates your lack of trust in God. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus talks about the impossibility of adding time to one's life. He asks the question, and which of you by worrying can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And the anticipated answer to Jesus' question is an emphatic, none of us, none of us can, no one. The mortality rate remains steady at 100%. The probability that you and I will die within the next 80, 100 years is 100%, unless Jesus were to return before then. And of course, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. It doesn't matter how much you may exercise or how healthy your diet may be. You have absolutely no control over the day you will die. And die you will. Worrying only cuts your life perhaps short. But what it does, it makes whatever's left of your life miserable. In verse 27 through 30, the Lord provides another picture, another illustration, emphasizing what he is teaching. He says, take a look at the fields of lilies, the lilies of the field. They don't toil nor spin, and yet look how they grow. These wild flowers They're not merely clothed, they are cladded with such grandeur that even the magnificent King Solomon could not match them. 
Second Chronicles tells us about King Solomon's grandeur. In chapter 9 of Second Chronicles, verses 13 through 28, we read portions. I'll read some portions. The weight of gold which came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. And all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. Solomon made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. And there were six steps to the throne and a, foot, and a footstool in gold attached to the throne and arms on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the arms. Twelve lions were also standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other side. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. Now all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All his vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. And every three years, ships of Tarshish would come carrying gold and silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. So that King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. And all the kings of the earth were seeking the presence of Solomon to hear the wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules, a set amount each year. Solomon was so stinking rich that he made the silver as plentiful as the stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the Shephelah. And he imported horses from Egypt and from all other countries. But notice the shift in verse 28. Jesus had been talking about these magnificent lilies, which are even more splendid, even more magnificent than the magnificent King Solomon. And notice how he refers to them in verse 28. The grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace. Jesus is saying that even these lilies, as he refers to them as grass, are inconsequential in light of eternity. And their withering points to the brevity of our lives. How finite, temporal, short-lived our lives are. And there's this tension between the insignificance of a bird or a flower, and yet God feeds them and clothes them with us who are of far greater value. And yet we are so prone to be anxious. How much more will God provide for us? Just as certain as He provides for these ravens and these lilies, so too will He provide for you. When you are anxious about what you will eat or what you will wear, it shows that you have little faith. You're not trusting God. You and I have been made in the image of God. Christian, you and I have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We have been adopted into His family because His blood that was shed on the cross cleansed us of our sin, secured our forgiveness and salvation. How much more will God give us if He didn't even spare His Son? We, have, we really should be the last people on earth that are given to anxiety over what we'll eat and drink and wear. Jesus issues two commands in verse 29. He says, do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. Don't seek it. And then secondly, do not keep worrying. 
Because as he explains in verse 30, to seek after these things is pagan, it's idolatrous, it's heathen, it's atheistic. Pagans seek after these things because they do not know or trust God. They are self-deceived in thinking that the true meaning, the true importance of life is in what one possesses in wealth and money and possessions. But for you and I, the knowledge of God, our relationship with God, God's love for us and our love for Him casts out all anxiety. If God provides daily bread in answer to our prayers, why should we be frantically seeking after it? Why should we seek after more than what we need? So what is it that we should be seeking? Jesus tells us what we should seek in verse 31 and 32. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Jesus is not saying that if you seek God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, that he's going to give you large amounts of money or a warehouse full of toys. No. Jesus is saying that if your primary goal in life is to know and serve him, to live in submission to his rule and reign, then material abundance will no longer be the driving factor of your life. Your physical circumstances are not going to be your primary concern. Like the Apostle Paul, you can say that I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. It's clear that Paul can say this because his treasure is not located in the things of the world. The way that you and I store up wealth and possessions in heaven is by giving it away, which is the conclusion of Jesus' teaching in verse 33 and 34. He says, in fact, he commands, sell your possessions, give it as charity, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. To store your treasures on earth, to hoard your possessions like this rich fool, it's going to cause grief, anxiety, judgment, division. But Jesus provides an example of many, one of the many ways that you and I can store up treasures in heaven. And one of the ways is by giving our money to the needy, giving to those that are in need. That is one of the ways that you will store up your treasures with God in heaven. If your heart is tied to the fleeting things of this world, your heavenly treasure will be bankrupt. And quite frankly, if your heart is so invested in the physical things of this world, you might not inherit the kingdom. Unless, of course, today you repent. You repent of your misplaced trust. 
You repent of your sin which has separated you from God. You repent of your love of money. You repent of your misplaced security. And you place your confidence in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, who alone can save you. Through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, he has provided salvation to all who turn from their sin, to tur who turn from the idols of this world, and to turn to him as the greatest treasure that we can ever possess. And who joyfully submit to him, seeking his kingdom, his glory, submitting to his rule, serving his purposes. In 2010, I wanted to marry a beautiful young lady, Claire. But I do remember wrestling in the beginning of that, that year. I sell property. I only earn commission. I don't get a fixed salary. How could I support a family? At the heart of my struggle was faithlessness. Do I trust God for our financial needs? I took a step of faith in May 2010, so a few months later, and we were engaged. Two months later, the Lord blessed me with a full-time offer for my company, a comfortable basic salary, a really generous commission structure, a car allowance, and a cell phone allowance. The Lord provided more than we needed. In 2016, I was at the peak of my career, earning way too much money, not knowing what I should do with all that God has entrusted to me, but I vividly remember thinking, all this money, all these holidays, all this whining and dining is vanity of vanities, meaningless. Is this really what God has called me to do? Is this really His purpose for my life? I think you may know the story. So later that year, I quit my job. And Claire and my two sons at the time jumped on a plane and went to California so that I could study at the Master's Seminary. And take a wild guess what was the source of my greatest anxiety. Would I be able to provide for my family now in America, where the exchange rate had risen just above, it was like below 18 rand to the dollar, 17 rand was there. It reduced our savings by 40%. Not being able to get a job for the first three months there. And when I finally managed to get one, it was only 20 hours a week at minimum wage. Now, all of a sudden, we found ourselves in a very different position financially. For the first time in our marriage, our expenses were higher than my income. How do we live of less than what it costs to live? And the answer, God. Give us this day our daily bread. God took care of us. He providentially orchestrated various events and circumstances where He took care of our every need plus more. Much more. And ever since I quit my job at J.H. Isaacs, the Lord has faithfully provided for our every need plus more. But every day, my wife and I we live by faith, trusting the Lord to provide that which He deems fit. Praying that God would enable us, that He would strengthen us in Christ to be content, whatever the circumstances may be. And praying that we would be faithful, generous stewards of all that He's entrusted to us 
using it not for our own selfish gratification, but for the good of others and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your clear teaching. Thank you for your word, which the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the tangible, visible, memorable illustrations that you have presented, that you have provided for us to deal with our unfounded anxiety. We, not, we need not fear, Lord, what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear. We need, not, we need only to look at the birds and the lilies and see how you care for them which are fleeting here today and gone tomorrow, much like us. Oh God, forgive us for our anxiety. Forgive us for our misplaced trust. And forgive us, Lord, for the desires that are still within us that longs to be satisfied with anything other than Jesus. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your work of salvation, which was a costly work. We're so thankful that we received you the moment that you saved us and that we get the joy of knowing you, enjoying you, being satisfied by you and living for you, no longer living enslaved to our flesh and the world and the evil one, but now slaves of Jesus. What a privilege, what an honor. Like the Apostle Paul, we pray that you'd help us to be content in whatever the circumstances might be, that you would strengthen us in Christ. And we do pray that we would be faithful, cheerful, generous stewards of that which you've entrusted to us, our wealth, our possessions, our time, our energy, our thoughts, our members, every faculty of our body. Oh God, may we invest it in you and your glory so as to, so as to store up treasures with God in heaven. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.